Some words have been robbed of all meaning. They've been used, abused, mangled, contorted, weaponized, and stripped of context. If we can't agree on what words mean, then we can't agree on much. This is Origin Story. In each episode, we take a key term from the political or cultural discourse and tell the story of where it came from, what happened to it, and what it means today. By exploring the history of the ideas, we'll try to get a clearer understanding of where we are now. My name's Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. My name is Ian Dunt. I'm a columnist with the Eye newspaper, and I'm the author of How to Be a Liberal. This episode, we will be discussing what the scholar Robert O. Paxton calls the major political innovation of the 20th century and the source of much of its pain, fascism. Unlike some of the words we discussed, which once had a clear meaning and then lost it, the meaning of fascism has been contested since at least the 1930s. And I think that the central problem here is it's not really an ideology. It's sort of improvised without a doctrine or an intellectual forefather. We'll start with the OED an authoritarian and nationalistic system of government and social organization which emerged after the end of the First World War in 1918 and became a prominent force in European politics during the 1920s and 1930s, most notably in Italy and Germany. So far, so good. Later, also an extreme right-wing political ideology based on the principles underlying this system. The first citations in Italy and Germany were both a tad optimistic. No doubt fascism is a transitory phenomenon, predicted the Syracuse (laughs) Herald in 1921. Fascism in Germany will never be more than one of several factors, no. said the Contemporary Review in 1923. There's a lot of life lessons in those two first years. It's really hard making <laughs> political predictions. So what, what do you think? It doesn't venture too far, does it? No, but even that would be considered controversial by some people, merely by virtue of the fact that they put a bracket around the dates. Yeah, and they've done that in two ways, right? First of all, by what it was originally, and then by saying that these new movements must relate back very firmly to the old one. Yeah. That, for many people, would already be controversial, that you can call people fascists without them harking back to the 1930s. Because the fundamental debate, really, it seems to me, is between those who think it can only apply to the period between 1922, when Mussolini took power, and 1945, when Nazi Germany was defeated, i.e. the lifespan Mm. of fascist regimes. On the other hand, you've got people like Umberto Eco who talk about the enduring fascist ethos. And essentially, there is a, a, a secondary meaning. Like Nobody's disputing the first meaning, but they're saying almost that there, there has to be a way in which the word lives beyond 1945. And we saw this debate raging throughout the Trump years. And there were admirable scholars on both sides mm-hmm. who disagreed very strongly on this. What do you think? Do you think that the second meaning uh, is valid? Oh, yeah, certainly. I mean, we, we, it's, there's two senses in which it's valid. The first one is as an early warning system to basically go, no, hang on a minute. This isn't just your bog standard authoritarian right-wingness. There's something really, really dangerous going on here. The second is I think that there is a sort of instinct in people towards a very extreme form of uniform society mm. and a very extreme sort of form of rhetoric around in-group hierarchy that is fascistic. And the exact point at which you're going to go, they're a fascist now, is obviously up for debate on every single issue, but that is qualitatively different to just a conservative authoritarian. And you need to keep that word there. And we have modern instances, sometimes an individual who will sort of be not fascist and then start behaving in a way that actually is very fascistic and then maybe stop. But you need that word in the armory. You need to be able to utilize it now. So we're going to return to the, the modern application of the word now. You know, is it fair to use it uh, to apply to Trump or Orban or Bolsonaro? Or is it, other favorites. is it actually, you know, is it actually self-defeating? But before we get into the history, there's just, just, just one uh, thing I wanted to ask you. Do you think it functions 
largely, perhaps to the annoyance of historians, as a moral insult. It is so stigmatized that it essentially represents evil, that fascism, Mm. even though it was invented in Italy by Mussolini, becomes synonymous with Nazism, and Nazism becomes synonymous with evil. Therefore, you know, the the kind of the actual sort of the details of, well, what exactly defines it and when exactly was it operative get blotted out by this sort of sense that this is hell on earth. That's such a good point. It's very weird to try and enter into a headspace where you imagine how we would think of the word if the Holocaust hadn't happened. Mm. And that's, I think, quite a revealing thought, right? So, like, think about the word denier, as it's sometimes used, climate change denier or Brexit denier. And that always feels like a really cheap political shot because we naturally associate that with the Holocaust. And we think you're trying to smear some of that immoral sort of ink over this other group. I suspect that when it's used badly, what's happening is that, is that what you're doing is you're borrowing from that inkwell of moral abyss from the Holocaust and using it to daub someone that may or may not, you know, deserve it. That's the bad usage of the word. I think the good usage is still the early warning sign about pernicious forms of authoritarian right-wing thought. Well, it was a long road to the abyss. One thing everyone can agree on is the word and the idea began in Italy just over a century ago. On the morning of Sunday, March 23rd, 1919, at a meeting in Milan's Piazza San Sepolcro of the Fasci Italiani di Combattimento. <laughs> I sort of half tried the accent there. No, I mean, it, I, you gave it a pretty good game. Yeah. Okay, formed by 35-year-old Benito Mussolini. And if you wanted to be a real purist about it, you could say the only real capital F fascism was the Italian version. Now, fascio means league, union, or fraternity from the Latin fascis, meaning an axe encased in a bundle of rods. With or without the axe, the bundle represented strength and solidarity. You can break one rod, you can't break uh, a whole bunch of them. In 1914, a group of left-wing nationalists who wanted Italy to enter the First World War called themselves the Fascio Revoluzionario d'Azione Interventista, the Revolutionary League for Interventionist Action. It's quite hard to believe that really terrible things have a name that sounds like you saying it in Italian, because you just make it sound quite fun and frivolous, like a kind of dessert. (laughs) That's just my ability to destroy all languages. Now, one member who joined late was Benito Mussolini, born in 1883 in Romagna in northern Italy. His father was a socialist blacksmith and his mother a schoolteacher, and he was named after the Mexican nationalist hero Benito Juarez. Hmm. Um, He was a loner with authoritarian leanings, but became a socialist in his early 20s, advocating violent revolution, was a successful editor of the socialist newspaper Avanti, you know, really boosted circulation. He called himself an authoritarian socialist who believed in an elite revolutionary vanguard to lead the masses. He was very critical, strangely, of nationalism. When he attacked the invasion of Libya in 1911, he said the national flag is a rag to be planted on a dunghill. Oh, wow. He changed his mind. He went on a journey. He went on a journey. So when the First World War began, uh, Mussolini became really frustrated with Italian socialists who wanted neutrality, he thought that only war could bring about revolution, resigned from Avanti, set up his own pro-interventionist paper. Italy did join the war in 1915, and Mussolini served in the army for 17 months. Now, after the war, he began assembling this group that I described, which means fraternities of combat, and coined the word fascismo. And at first meeting, that he's drawing followers from three strands of post-war Italian society. One was war veterans, largely of the commando known as the Arditi, this elite unit who wore black to symbolize death. 
Another was sort of trade unionist syndicalists who had split from the mainstream socialists, as he had, over their support for the war and national destiny. And the third was these intellectuals and artists who called themselves the Futurists. Um, most famously, Filippo Marinetti wrote, except in struggle, there is no more beauty. No work without an aggressive character can be a masterpiece. This coincided with what the war had done to people. Mussolini talked of the trenchocracy, the brotherhood of mm -hmm. war, the excitement and the sort of fraternity of, of violence. Now, the weird thing here is that if you looked at the turn of the century, nobody saw this coming. Nobody thought that there could be a, a socially conservative populist backlash against the left. That did not seem to be the way history was going. It looked like you had liberals, conservatives, and socialists, which is why people talk about this is the most sort of surprising invention. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Makes it sound like a fun treat, which was not. Um, but in retrospect, you can actually look back at various thinkers and intellectual currents and show where fascism came from. It was a surprise, but it didn't come from nowhere. So what was Mussolini drawing on? It is sort of ideological archaeology that you do with this stuff, because, you know, you never know how much of it they've read. But the way it tends to be painted is as follows. The first is you go back to, to Rousseau. Rousseau is sometimes put within the Enlightenment tradition, most often not. He was a, basically a completely insane man um, from Geneva. He had two key philosophical ideas. The first was the general will which sounds democratic, but isn't really. It's, it's actually quite mad. It's this sort of idea that in certain circumstances, you get people together and they almost manifest their group consciousness. And that is objectively true, that consciousness. They almost sort of cease to be individuals. They have an assessment of the common good that exists as a group. And then he has a second idea that he adds to it, which is quite dangerous. And it's the idea of the legislator, that there will be a leader who kind of ushers people into the right circumstances for the general will. If I'm making all of this sound quite mystical and bizarre, it's because it is quite mystical and bizarre in the manner, in his whole manner of conducting himself. And in fact, mysticism is sort of a feature of almost all of these thinkers and of the practitioners. And the legislator isn't really supposed to do it through argument. He does it through sort of ritual, through charisma. You may notice where some of these ideas are going. And that's the way that he sort of uh, achieves it. After Rousseau, you get Gustave Le Bon. He wrote The Psychology of Crowds in 1895. And it was this sort of idea of the group mind, that in a sort of mob of people, they cease to be individuals and they start to have a group consciousness, very much along the lines, um, although in a different context to what Rousseau was talking about. He said it happened through one, anonymity, two, contagion, and three, suggestibility. He says, an individual in a crowd is a grain of sand amid other grains of sand, which the wind stirs up at will. And that's a, to be honest, like, sort of then followed on by Georges Sorel, 1847 to 1922. He was a Marxist who essentially gave up on the idea of the sort of that sort of scientific Marxist assessment and wanted Marxism to be a kind of social poetry and for the working class to be brought to revolutionary consciousness by the use of myths. He'd seen the French workers mass strike in 1900, and he sort of thought trade unions are going to pull back on the violence that breaks out. You don't want to do that. 
You want to encourage the violence because what's happening there is a form of myth-making that will go on to inform the narratives. That goes, he says it's going to provide the intuition of socialism which language cannot give us. Now, Mussolini specifically said, Sorel has been my master. So there was a really clear cut at that point linkage between what was being said. So you've got these ideas of violence as communication, of the group psychology. Well, they're grabbing from, from, from all over. Also got Nietzsche, I mean, that whole issue, you know, the whole issue of, of Nietzsche's relationship to fascism is very contested, mm-hmm. but they were certainly taking bits from him, even if they were taking it in ways that he did not intend. And they liked to be thought of as followers of yeah. his, even if he may not have agreed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you also had you had thinkers in France, in Italy. You also had the role of social Darwinism and race science. Yeah, The way that I look at it, it was almost like a a sort of pile of munitions that was being built without anybody noticing. And what it took to set them off was the First World War, which made fascism possible. So right away, it discredits the sort of liberal optimism that was Mm -hmm. a real feature of the early 20th century, created a a huge range of new problems and strains on society that that did need to be addressed somehow, raised the specter of Bolshevik revolution, which is obviously terrifying to the bourgeoisie, on a practical level, produced a mass of angry, aimless war veterans with a strong sense of sort of warrior camaraderie and mm. really, really wanting a purpose in life, left some countries traumatized and humiliated. Weirdly, Italy was on the side of the victors, but had the mentality of defeat. Mm-hmm. It was very, very odd. Plus, you had now the mass franchise, which came out of that. Loads more voters introduces the concept of total war and mass propaganda, increases acceptance of militarism, nationalism, violence. Weirdly, this seems counterintuitive, but but Lenin offers a sort of model for one-party rule, the cult of personality and the, and the murder of opponents. Mm-hmm. So even though fascists were very much opposed to Lenin, they were like, oh, wow, look what can be done. So all of these different factors come out of the First World War, and that is what ignites all of these disparate sort of intellectual gunpowder. There's a quote by um, Ernest Younger, who wrote during World War One, that I think brings a lot of this to life. It gives that sense of these these young men that had found meaning through violence and that were then put into sort of capitalist society in a shit economy where they were like, well, none of this, this materialism just doesn't mean shit to me. Mm. He wrote, when I observed how they silently cut lanes through the tangle of barbed wire, I am overcome with recognition. This is the new man, the storm pioneer, the elite of Central Europe, a whole new race, smart, strong, and filled with will. The war is not the end, but the prelude to violence. The war is a great school, and the new man will bear our stamp. Now, because all this is happening really quickly, it's very strange to look at the first program of Mussolini's fascists from May 1919 as if it were a founding document, Mm. because it's still got people like Mussolini, these sort of former socialists. Mm. So it includes votes for women, minimum wage, huge taxes on capital, opposes the monarchy, the church and imperialism. (laughs) All of these possessions would be reversed, positions reversed within like three years. Um, Mussolini later admitted, I had in mind no specific theoretical program. Fascism did not arise out of a doctrine previously drafted at a desk. It was born out of the need for action and consisted in action. In the first two years, it was not a party, but an anti-party and a movement. And the only consistent feature was violence. And one of the first things Mussolini's friends did, including Marinetti, was storm the offices of his old newspaper, Avanti, killing four people and injuring 39. One fascist said, the fist is the synthesis of our theory. Mm -hmm. I've always thought that's one of the best fascist quotes. 
And I think that sort of brings it up because it is that it's because it, it, even though there's some there's some post hoc attempts to be like oh you know Nietzsche or whatever, mm. ultimately it's just like we we do just want to beat the shit out of people and everything follows from that. It's fact. really important to remember because uh, Robert O. Paxton in the Anatomy of Fascism, which I think is the book that we both agree on, we like we both like it very much. Yeah, says fascism was an affair of the gut more than of the brain, and mm. a study of the roots of fascism that treats only the thinkers and the writers misses the most powerful impulses. I think that's spot on. Yeah. I think that's absolutely spot on. Now, as well as violence and action, you have the aesthetic. And really, the, mo- the second most important person in the early days of fascism wasn't a fascist at all. He was Gabriel D'Annunzio, celebrated poet, playwright, journalist, womanizer, aviator, war hero, and ultranationalist, who was influenced by Nietzsche and Sorel. In September 1919, he and 2,000 followers seized the Adriatic port of Fiume, which was meant to be handed over to Yugoslavia under the terms of the Paris Peace Conference, and one of the things that made Italy feel humiliated. He declared it an independent state with himself as Il Duce, the leader. Mm. And towards the end of the 15-month occupation, he declared war on Italy itself, not very successfully. (laughs) Now, Mussolini was quite sort of, he was not embarrassed by Denuncio, but also jealous because of his sense of theatre. So Denuncio introduces, during this occupation, the black shirts, the stiff-armed Roman salute, the rousing mm. speeches from the balcony, rhythmic chanting from the crowd. Mm. It's essentially a kind of like modernist remix of images and rituals from ancient Rome. And Mussolini, very conscious of restoring the greatness of Rome, takes all this on board really quickly. So by the end of 1921, fascists had designed um, their marches, ceremonies, funeral rituals, a sort of cult of the glorious Mm. dead. So he took most of this from Denuncio, but unlike Denuncio, he was very politically canny and willing to compromise to gain power. He was not going to go down in flames like Denuncio did in, in Fiume. Now, initially, the fascists are not electorally successful. They're humiliated in the first elections they stand in. Their fortunes change very quickly, largely because of this wave of socialist trade unions organizing strikes in the countryside, factory occupations in the city, 19 and 1920, are known as the two red years. Now, this creates this fear that there's going to be a, like a Bolshevik revolution in Italy. This fear makes the landowners and businessmen more sympathetic to the fascists. But a lot of these people acted sort of independently for Mussolini. This wasn't orchestrated from the top. So you get these black-shirted thugs called squadristi. And they effectively took over several towns in the Po Valley in the, the north and became a shadow government. And in the early stages, it's more violent than Nazism. Between 20 and 22, about 500 fascists and 2,000 non-fascists were killed in political violence. Mm. And during this period, Mussolini actually founds the National Fascist Party. So there is all this violence there. The fascists are essentially running parts of Italy. The Italian government and King Vittorio Emmanuel are naturally terrified. So in October 1922, 30,000 of Mussolini's followers marched on Rome, planning to seize key buildings. Well, Mussolini waited in Milan, <laughs> which is, uh, and, and considered uh, making a break for the Swiss border <laughs> in case it all went wrong. Now, this is sometimes thought of as a coup, but it it wasn't. It was a pressure tactic. So you get this pressure from the streets mixed with elite compliance. The prime minister is is begging the king to impose martial law. The king won't do it because he thinks, whereas the fascists seem to be running parts of the country, that civil war could break out. So instead, he brings the fascists into government, appoints Mussolini head of a coalition government at the age of 39. 
Now, Mussolini was a very impressive performer. He'd learned to be a performer. He didn't wear his glasses in photos. He shaved his head to conceal his receding hairline, which I do not think is a a bad thing in and of itself. Liked posing with his shirt off, like uh, Vladimir Putin does. Mm -hmm. But he also suffered from mood swings, uh, which may have been a form of bipolar disorder. Uh, He had several mistresses, but no close friends. He worked extremely hard, lived very frugally, even donated large sums to charity anonymously, which is very surprising. And a lot of his decisions were based on pressure from the squadristi and these local chieftains, essentially. He was kind of, if he didn't keep radicalizing the fascist party, then he would be ousted. Mm -hmm. So the epitome of this is during the 1924 election, which is full of corruption, intimidation, and violence. The socialist leader, Giacomo Mattiotti, was kidnapped and, it turned out, murdered. Despite a huge backlash, Mussolini was paralyzed, very, very depressed, didn't know what to do. And so he was so scared of seeming weak and losing control of the party that Mussolini went the other way, dissolved parliament, cracked down on political opponents and the press. And this is when the real dictatorship began establishing his personal control of the party, you know, the party's control of the state. It's not to say that he didn't believe in anything, but the way in which he evolved and he dropped things and he picked things up and it was it was really whatever worked. Mm. And part of this is because it's three and a half years between that first meeting in Milan and him becoming prime minister. That's crazy. Whereas in Germany... A much longer road mm-hmm. for Hitler. Mm-hmm. So what's happening with Hitler in, in the aftermath of the First World War? Because he doesn't found the Nazi. He party. doesn't. It's, it's founded by a locksmith called Anton Drexler and a journalist called Karl Harrer. And they sort of, I mean, Drexler sets up a discussion group in Munich in 1918. He joins forces with her in, in October. And in January of the next year, they form the German Workers' Party. Now, Hitler is sent there by the Bavarian army. He's working in the army at the time. He's just come out of, you know, the loss from World War I, where, you know, he said he was basically almost blinded by the sense of loss. There's a photo of him on the day the war was announced where he looks very happy, you know. So that was the moment that he had found purpose in his life. Before then, he had, I mean, what seems an absurd word to sort of associate with him, but a bohemian lifestyle. <laughs> you know, he was just mucking about in Vienna, saving money to go to Wagner concerts, drawing. People always say that thing about the art, or if only he'd been accepted, you know, at the Vienna School, at the Vienna Academy of Art. Actually, the art is quite interesting because the art is always these sort of lifeless photos of buildings in minute detail. But what interests him about the architecture is how sort of heavy and oppressive and and the expression of power Mm. and solidity that you get from it. Essentially, it's a continuation of... Well, I mean, yes, that that, that sort of, oh, if only he'd gone into painting theory (laughs) is obviously nonsense because Marinetti managed to be both an artist and a fascist at the same time. (laughs) He could have done both jobs if he really wanted. He could have done both. In fact, when you look at his intellect, I mean, again, he does claim to have read Nietzsche. I'm not so certain that he did. But really, the the sort of real influences on him are that kind of architecture. I mean, when he's in power, he's not very interested in policy and power. He's mostly spends his time talking to Albert Speer, who's really his only friend. He's this architect Mm. who designed the Nuremberg rallies in the 1930s, just talking about what kind of buildings they're going to make. The rest of the time, he's spending it with Winifred Wagner, the daughter-in-law of the composer. So all of his stuff comes from this just, again, sense of feeling. You know, it's not really about the intellect. It's about the heart and the fist. So look, he observes the party for the first time in September 1919. And quickly joins it. He's not that impressed, but he joins anyway. And starts speaking in these beer halls. 
This is mentioned a lot, but he's actually quite a nervous speaker at first. And part of his style is developed around addressing his nerves. So he starts kind of quietly and hesitantly and builds up at the end of the speeches to these crescendos, some, some of the time which he appears to be talking in tongue. And actually, that's a development of his own nervousness from talking at the beginning. But he's, he quite quickly notices the people that he's very charismatic and more and more people are coming to the speeches. Whenever you read about Hitler, the phrase that comes up over and over and over again is fell under his spell. Yeah, you know, so with Goebbels, who was who was to the left of him in Nazi terminology, you know, we thought of him as bourgeois and quite reactionary at the beginning, but then eventually comes under his spells. He writes, you know, in his diary, he writes, "Hitler, I love you because you are great and you are simple." The same with Mussolini. Yes, I mean, great, great diary entry that one. <laughs> the same with Mussolini. I mean, Mussolini has a sort of odd relationship with him at first, and then eventually they say he falls under the spell. It's always that same phrase that comes up again. And he is clearly incredibly charismatic. The people that came in contact with him by. April of the next year, 1920, he changed the name to the National Socialist German Workers' Party or the Nazi Party. It's essentially getting its support from two groups. The first is the sort of petty bourgeoisie, sort of small shop owners, lower middle classes. I mean, one of, you know, this has echoes of Mussolini, really, but one of the policies they put forward that's getting them the most support is to get rid of large department stores because it's not in the interest of small shop wow. owners, you know. It's a very effective policy for them. Uh, and the other is, again, young men from the trenches, you know, alienated, almost pathologically in need of violence and deeply sort of lonely in the materialist society in which they find themselves. They develop the swastika flag. And again, they basically take it from sort of occult groups and some old Volkish groups. Volk is the general word for the people but with a racial connotation to it. And they use something very clever with it, which is that they use the color red. And the color red has these, this association with the old imperial legacy, but also attracts socialists. And not just electorally, it attracts them because he wants them coming to the meetings because then fights will happen. And the fights are part of the communication strategy for the party. They want those fights to be taking place. That's fascinating. So it's a, it's a different use of violence to what the Italian fascists... We're it's, doing. it's quite theatrical. It's less militarized. It's, it's essentially street fighting. Mm. And in fact, the Nazis are equipped with sort of knuckle dusters, truncheons, pistols, grenades even. All of that, again, is just this view of like the violence is the communication. Yeah. It's to symbolize security, weirdly enough, that, you know, these are the guys you've got to get behind or else you're, you know, you're going to get hit. And also a sense of sort of redemption and rebirth of the nation as suddenly potent and virile and strong. Because at this point, you know, Germany is suffering through hyperinflation. It has been humiliated in the war. And if we hark back actually to the beginning of the culture war episode of, you know, Bismarck's thing of what is Germany? How do we define it? This is the end of that story. It had tried to define itself as a nation through sort of imperial sort of external conquest. And now that had come catastrophically to a close. And there was that real sense of, in a form of your material life and your sense of identity. What is it? What are we? Getting over the humiliation. He provided some sort of visual answer to that. I think now is a good time to ask, like, what was National Socialism? Because right-wing people on Twitter delight yes. in going, uh, Hitler was a leftist, because look, the, the word socialist is, is, is <laughs> really in the name. Terribly clever. They're very well researched. And it wasn't that, as it was described, Mussolini was a former socialist. So it wasn't like there was no connection there. But can you just explain why was it called the National Socialist Party? Essentially, I mean, to attract socialists and to attract people, the working classes. 
but that whole period, almost all of these sort of fascist or fascist aligned thinkers are all thinking about how do we get the kind of thing that the Social Democrat Party, which is a Marxist party, not what the name would suggest, is appealing to, what the communists are appealing to. How do we get mobilize the working class for the nation or for the race rather than for this sort of communist propaganda? So there is a real sense of methodological learning, even if none, even if the ide- ideology is quite distinct. Because there were... There were socialist tendencies in these parties. It's just they didn't prevail. So Paxton argues that look at what fascists did rather than what they said. Mm -hmm. Um, For all their kind of anti-capitalist talk, they basically cozied up to big business and arrested and assaulted socialists. So clearly, in practice, not socialists. The socialists are the first people they kill. You know, know, that should be the the final word on that. No, but there there is a kind of anti-capitalist wing of the Nazi party. Yes, led by Gregor on Otto, Otto Strasser. Uh, things did not end well for Gregor. He was driven out of politics in 1933 um, after scheming to become vice-chancellor mm. and then murdered during the Night of the Long Knives. But he represented that sort of that possibility of them really leaning into the anti-capitalism. This is what he said in 1925. We national socialists want the economic revolution involving the nationalization of the economy. We want in place of an exploitative capitalist economic system, a real socialism maintained not by a soulless Jewish materialist outlook, by the believing sacrificial and unselfish old German community sentiment, community purpose and economic feeling. We want the social revolution in order to bring about the national revolution. So not only was Hitler clearly not any species of socialist, but Strasser, that's a very specific kind, an interpretation of socialism founded, you know, rooted in anti-Semitism and nationalism. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and also, it's also worth mentioning that Hitler is way to the, just call him way to the right of Mussolini is such an absurd sentence. Yeah, true. But, you know, but he's, he certainly has less of those left-wing inclinations. I think the question isn't, is there something socialist about it? No. There's two pertinent things here. I think the first one is that lots of these figures were engaged in a kind of authoritarian centrism. You know, we recognize that there is a similarity here and that we can harness some of the socialist energy for the nation or for the race. A second thing that's happening, and this is, I think, is genuinely important to mention, which is that they are all uncomfortable about capitalism. Even if they sign up to it and the businesses in the end sign up to them as well, they're uncomfortable with this idea of individual profit, you know, of the price point. Essentially, you're an individual in a materialist market. They want something that is about the nation, that is about common purpose, that is bigger than materialism, you know, that is about this almost sort of deified sense of the nation. And that doesn't sit easily with capitalism. That is a really distinct set of propositions. And so they, they, there's a sort of, they, yeah. they do fit together eventually, but it's always a very, very uneasy relationship. But at the same time, you've actually got, you know, the Marxist analysis in the 1930s can only see... Yes, it's useless. ...fascism as a tool mm-hmm. of the capitalist class, as the kind of bludgeon of the capitalist class, which is also wrong... But I think it was because people were trying to say, well, is this, is this, is this pro-capitalist? Is this anti-capitalist? And of course, it was something new. And yeah, people struggled yeah. to get their heads around something new. And to brief, brief a little bit about Mussolini when he, when he comes to power. Like I said, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have much of a program yet. And he's, a, he's an opportunist. Winston Churchill wrote to Mussolini in 1927 to say that if he was born Italian, then he would be fully behind him mm. in his war against the Leninists. Okay, he in 1933, he's still calling Mussolini the greatest living legislator. 
And there's a relatively stable period from 1929 to 1934, after which he falls into paranoia and megalomania because fascism is inherently unstable. It's dynamic. It has to keep, mm. like a shark, it has to keep mm. moving or, or it dies. And he thought, well, the new, the new Italian glory, the new Italian man has not been created yet. He kept expanding fascism's role in public life until around half of Italy's 44 million citizens belonged to some kind of fascist organization. Coined the word totalitarianism, didn't practice it. Nobody really believes that this was this was totalitarianism. Weirdly, much less dangerous than Hitler became to his own people. Mm-hmm. Executed, I think, nine political prisoners. I mean, that's prior incredible. to nineteen forty. That's just incredible. Which is so tiny. Imprisoned some people, including famously Gramsci. But most political trials ended in acquittal. Oh wow! Which is just astonishing. And the real victims of Italian fascism are in Africa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Repression of Libyans, which was a, a, a colony of um, Italy, and the invasion of Ethiopia. About half a million Africans die there. And he plots this war largely because he needs to revitalize fascism, again, with imperial conquest, boost the economy, and give himself the power and sort of glory of being a war leader. He says in 1934, war is to men as maternity is to women. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and this is the turning point for international opinion. British Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden calls him a gangster. Very common word applied to fascism. Mm-hmm. In the 1930s. Seems a little weird now. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's in Brecht's play, The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui, where the Hitler figure is a Chicago gangster. Mm-hmm. That was how they were seen. Condemned by Britain and France, who does Mussolini turn to as his ally? Hitler, who is uh, now in power. Would you say, by the way, that what he does in Ethiopia is even that different to the kind of thing that Britain has done in it? Essentially, it's, it's like murderous imperialism. Yes, it's not a war of fascist conquest. Mm. It is essentially one of the last imperialist mm-hmm. invasions. But yes, I mean, while condemned by Britain and France, really because he did it too late. <laughs> and had he done it in the 19th century... <laughs> it be part of the course. That would have been part yeah. of the course. Mm. Hitler coming to power, does he come to power in the same way as Mussolini. You know, Hannah Arendt famously describes uh, fascism as a temporary alliance between the mobs and the elites. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is, is that basically the same thing? It's like pressure from the streets and compliance from the elites. It rhymes. That was quite good. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, and you have the same sort of sense of the political system is completely trapped and unable to move and, and people make very, very foolish choices. He's tried, of course, to sort of mimic Mussolini with the beer hall putsch in 23, which doesn't work and ends up with him spending a very cosy seven months in jail with wine and visitors. He still drinks at this stage. So he doesn't really have too hard a time there. He is in exactly the same way as those early days with Mussolini, you know, basically treated with kid gloves, you know, at worst by the police and, and the army and various guises. When he comes in, it's, it's a chance that I think everyone know, will know this story quite well. And the idea that the system, that the establishment can sort of control him. Um, and, uh, you know, spoilers, but it can't and it doesn't. It's worth noting that the sort of the first things that he does... The first department he sets up is the Ministry for Public Enlightenment and Propaganda, run by Joseph Goebbels, who will be doing all of the public enlightening and propaganda. His first major task is to orchestrate a ceremony at the Potsdam Garrison Church. Hitler's first broadcast 
He paints the Nazis as disciples, and he's this sort of modest man who sacrifices everything for the rebirth of his people. When you look at the propaganda from this period, rebirth is the word that is used over and wow. over again. So when yeah. you see the triumph, I was looking at, I was quite, it was quite awkward because there were people in the house, but I watched the sort of the opening of the triumph of the will uh, for this, the sort of 1934 Nazi propaganda film from the Nuremberg rally. And rebirth is one of the first words that's used. It said, this is this many months since Germany's rebirth. It's almost like year zero. Right, because that's the common theme. It's sort of decadence and decline and the nation needs to be saved and reborn. Yeah. In fire, basically. It's, 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 it's always this sort of paganized Christian narrative. It's death and rebirth. It's redemption, you know, through sacrifice. And even when you look at, when you look at Triumph of the Will, you know, it opens with this plane in the clouds that forms a sort of shadow of a cross over these marching groups mm. of men. The plane lands, Hitler's in it, and he, there's almost this sort of halo of light behind him. And he's greeted like the Messiah. So Hitler moves very quickly. I mean, within the first six months, you see the suspension of all, pretty much all individual freedoms. The Enabling Act sort of renders the Reichstag Parliament completely powerless. Communist parties banned. The Social Democratic parties banned. The Centre Party, which you may remember from our episode on culture war, is dissolved. It's a little bit more polite in negotiations with the Catholic Church, but ultimately the end result is the same. It becomes a one-party state. Uh, Heinrich Himmler opens the first concentration camp at Dachau, at Dachau, which is just outside of Munich. Within the first months of 1933, there's already 70 camps established. I got pulled up on this actually by Richard Evans, who wrote the Third Reich trilogy, when I sent him one of the early drafts for How to Be a Liberal covering this period, is to be quite careful about distinguishing between the way that they treated their victims. So first of all, there is social pollution the people that are sort of corrupting the race and corroding it. So that's criminals, long-term unemployed, this group called asocials, which is a very broad category, which could include sort of sex workers, gypsies, tramps, obviously gay men as well. Lots of these people ended up being killed. So it's not, I'm sure it wouldn't have made any difference to them at the point that they were killed, you know, which of the categories they fell into. But they're a form of social pollution. The Jews were different. And the Jews were the enemy of the race, not a pollutant, but an obstacle and an enemy that had to be destroyed. And they were thought of as a separate category. But actually, they were really that actually came considerably later, to be honest, as we get into sort of, you know, broken glass, Kristallnacht. Initially, you don't see those around. The first victims are Communist Party members, liberals, to a lesser extent, and socialists. You also see this concept of, and I'm sorry about my German here, it's going to be terrible, Glischaltung, which is coordination. It's a form of complete social control. And this is where totalitarianism, even though the Nazis don't really use that word, they very much deliver mm -hmm. on, on what it entails. So the civil service and local government are taken over. Radio stations, newspapers, magazines, cinemas, they're all coordinated. Of course, especially for these guys, radio and cinema is of absolutely the highest importance because it is essentially a, a, you know, a propaganda device operating as a political party. Well, this is it. The, the, the fascism is this strange blend of ancient and modern yes, and that they're exactly. obsessed yeah. with like uh with, with cinema and aeroplanes and grand buildings yes yeah but all in the service of this kind of you know ancient sort of like paganistic almost, mysticism almost primordial sense of, of of identity of group identity i mean they take over everything you know universities health insurance offices theater sports associations the gestapo secret police are set up most of the information that the gestapo gets they're not getting it themselves it is fed into them by citizens reporting on each other and there's a bit of a debate in higher levels of, of the sort of nazi rank and file of do we really need to crack down on these kind of minor jokes you know about Goebbels or whatever mm -hmm. and they're like yeah 
Because you cannot have even the bat squeak of recognition that criticism is possible. You know, what you have is the group, the Volk, the people, you know, represented by the race leadership of Hitler. Robert Ley has the famous line, he says, the only person in Germany who still has a private life is a person who's sleeping. Actually, Charlotte Burat did an analysis of Germans' dreams during that period and found that actually that wasn't even true, that actually most Germans were dreaming of the state. They had these dreams of being completely exposed and sort of attacked by this much more powerful force that actually, even in their dreams, the Nazi party had penetrated. Obviously, I think people will be aware that there were these significant differences between Italian fascism and Nazism. Uh, for a long time, Mussolini thought of fascism as a uniquely Italian phenomenon. He had no interest in exporting it to other countries. Mm-hmm. It's, communism always had this sense of the, the international. Yes. And, yeah. and, and fascism was very much like about individual nations. When Hitler came to power, Mussolini said, I should be pleased, I suppose, that Hitler has carried out a revolution on our lines, but they are Germans, so they will end by ruining our idea. <laughs> I mean, which you could say they did. I think fascism, the word fascism would signify something else yeah, yeah. if it just described the regime of Mussolini. Not, not desirable, mm. but not synonymous with evil. And in fact, you get these Italian publications accusing Nazis of being too left-wing, too anti-individualistic, too anti-Catholic, too anti-Semitic. Some publications called Hitler the Antichrist and National Socialism a political movement of pederasts. Hmm. And they explicitly denounced the racism. Now, obviously, you can say, well, you don't invade Ethiopia and treat the Ethiopians as you did, mm-hmm. you know, unless you were racist. But I think they, they, their racism was not this kind of like obsessive, fanatical, biological yes. racism that underpins you know, Hitler's thinking and therefore kind of permeates the whole country. Okay, and so let's just wrap up the history bit with with the Second World War. Now, the Spanish Civil War brings Hitler and Mussolini together, sending aid to, to Franco. When Spain is finished, I will think of something else, said Mussolini. The character of the Italian people must be molded by fighting. Mm. And because of this alliance, Italy passes its first anti-Semitic laws in 1938, largely to please Hitler. Mm-hmm. Not that You know, Mussolini was immune to anti-Semitism, but that was why the laws were instituted. Ironically, Mussolini was a terrible war leader. I think of this with Putin right now, Mm -hmm. this idea that war is the nation's destiny, but you're not very good at it. So he joins the Second World War at the last possible moment, June 1940, so he could take some credit for the invasion of France. Mm -hmm. In Greece, Yugoslavia, North Africa, Italy is humiliated, needs saving by Germany, basically. The Italian army is underprepared and incompetent. Morale is appalling. When the Allies invade Sicily in July 1943 and then move on up through Italy, Mussolini is ousted with very little public protest. Mm -hmm. Not many people willing to die for Mussolini. Mm -hmm. He then founds the so-called Salo Republic in northern Italy, which was basically a sort of German satellite. And this is... The ultimate form of Italian fascism. Marinetti suggested that Mussolini dropped the word fascist altogether because it had been somewhat discredited, (laughs) (laughs) associated with violence, corruption and failure. Mussolini then moved in two directions. He wanted to go back to the sort of national socialist roots. So talked about, on the one hand, he talked about an independent judiciary, greater freedom for the press and trade unions, worker co-ops, profit sharing, removing the monarchy. He did in Napoleon. None of this, of course, actually happened. What did happen was they stepped up the violence and the anti-Semitism. This is how Primo Levi mm-hmm. ended up in Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. So this was the most sort of Nazified 
version of Italian fascism. Um, but it really can't achieve that. It's obviously a nightmare for the people living within its mm -hmm. borders. But it really doesn't do much, the Salo Republic. In April 1945, Mussolini and his mistress, Clara Patacci, were seized by resistance fighters, shot, hung from the roof of an Esso service station in Milan's Piazzale Loreto, not far from the Piazza San Sepulcro, where fascism began. The funny thing about fascism, that thing you said about the sense of movement, of it has to move, becomes the reason that I think a war cannot be prevented in the first place. You know, they have to just keep, he just keeps on taking shit, basically, and eventually people will have to go to war with him. But also the whole method of how they conduct war, which is a war of movement. As soon as, soon as Hitler gets stopped somewhere, it all goes horribly wrong for him. The point that there's just pure movement, mm. you know, everything actually works. For the first few years it does, and there's a sense in Germany that actually maybe this this is real, you know, that this is going to succeed. Quickly that falls apart. The war radicalizes, I'm not sure it radicalizes Hitler, but it radicalizes the various options available to him. You know, you have these zones, you know, across Eastern Europe where there's essentially no law of any sort. No one can see what you're doing. And the Nazis are still concerned about what people might think, right. especially when it comes to, 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 to the Jews. You know, there's still this uncertainty. There was a, a sort of euthanasia program before the war that was actually stopped by protests from the Catholic Church and from people. You know, so there was a sense of like they will respond to public pressure. There were hints after Kristallnacht of public not opposition, because people didn't stand up. We shouldn't pretend that they did. But a, a public alarm about the treatment of the Jews there. So out in these zones, you can do whatever you like. There are no rules whatsoever. And also there's that sense of just escalation of sort of moral depravity, which often happens in war. Mm. So what starts is, uh, and that, by the way, Hitler was very clear about this. He says, the war made possible for us the solution of a whole series of problems which could never have been solved in normal times. The killing of the Jews starts in a very chaotic way, according to sort of local initiatives. So for instance, in July 1941, you have three SS units in Riga in, in Latvia who killed 2,000 Jews in a wood outside of the town. And there are two changes that take place. The first is they start to say we're going to kill non-combatants. And the second is that we're going to start killing women and children. Which essentially at that point, takes over, you're going to kill the whole of the Jewish population wherever you find them. Now, those changes, those parameters, uh, were set by Hitler and they're articulated through repeated verbal orders by Himmler. And that turns into the Holocaust. The total death toll is 3 million in the extermination camps, 700,000 in mobile vans, 1.3 million by shooting, and up to a million from hunger or disease, totaling around 6 million Jews that were killed during this period. And therein lies our association of fascism yes. with pure evil. And what, what didn't happen was the genocide, you know, that Hitler had in mind if he had defeated Russia. Yes, exactly. The, 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 the scale of it the scale of the killing, and like I said more people were killed in like the rise of Italian fascism than the rise of German fascism. But once they got into office, mm -hmm. it was the power of, of, of racism unleashed, and all these other. I just want to talk about uh, the, some of the commonalities and some of the, the you know the characteristics of fascism. But because of that, quite rightly, because of Hitler's obsessive racism, because of the Holocaust, that is what we associate fascism with is targeted mass murder. The scale of it is so huge in human history. Mm. It's almost impossible to see around it. You know, anything that was around it just becomes, can only be seen through the prism of what took place. And that has dangers and 
and sort of advantages in the way that you think about fashion. Because one way of looking at it is when we think in these ways, you know, there is a road that leads to a certain place in the right conditions. But that that, that is a morally important thing to recognize. The danger is then when we try to take some of that moral horror and, and apply it in situations where it may not be applicable. Right, because sometimes you use the word fascist and people just think, well, I don't think this is going to lead to the gas chambers. And it's like, right. well, it, it doesn't have to. <laughs> um, in order to, there was an enormous amount of suffering, you know, that took place in that almost a, a decade in Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. you know, before you get to the, before you get to the Holocaust. We, I mean, listeners may know what happened to Nazism in the end. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do we need to say that, or should we just assume that Hitler talked uh, himself in his bunker shortly after marrying his mistress? Right, fascism thoroughly discredited. <laughs> yes, its image wasn't fantastic in the years w- after this. Debate. One would say. Um, so I just want to talk about some of the, the you know, the, the the commonalities quickly. I'm going to take a few quotes from the Doctrine of Fascism by Mussolini from 1932. He did finally get round to writing one 13 years after <laughs> saying it all up, in which he predicts the 20th century will be the century of fascism up to a point. So one, the leader and the party are synonymous with the people, the the Volk Mm, or the the Razza, and the vehicle for its historical destiny. There was a slogan in Italy, il duce sempre ragioni, the leader is always right. Mm -hmm. Two, which eventually, by the way, becomes the whole legislative structure of Germany. Mm. There's the part of the sort of formal constitution becomes we can write legislation, we do write legislation because you know we want to be polite. But ultimately, if 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 the Führer says something, yes. it is law by virtue of having been omitted from his mouth. Two, fascism refreshed old myths in a new way that appealed to young people with the glamour and virility of violence, because it was. This is what is quite horrifying that it was very popular. With young people. Yes, yes. Overwhelming, and, you say. And, you know, that's something that is is very different now when we're talking about, you know, support for authoritarian right parties. Yeah. Voters are much, much older. Three, it has to be a mass movement, not just elite seizure of power, even though fascist parties never achieve 50% at elections, which people point out. Yeah. It, it was very popular. It wasn't yeah. just imposed by fear. Yeah. Uh, here we go. Sixty percent of undergraduates in 1931 supported the Nazi Student League. Mm-hmm. There is a genuine grassroots thing, even though it's not yes. the majority. Yeah. It's important to keep on saying that it wasn't the majority and never was. But but and there's opinion. But there's opinion both from that period. You just right. you can't trust them or anything. But it's quite clear that there was popular support, especially after Hitler was in power. For action, not words, loyalty and zeal, not reason and ideas. And Mussolini, the doctrine of fascism. As you said, it talks about fascism as a spiritual community. The fascist conception of life is a religious one. Now, obviously, he was trying to kind of tie himself to the Catholic Church there. But mm-hmm. I do think that Nazism and has been portrayed, portrayed in, in quite a few books, actually, as a, as a religion, a pseudo-religion. Yes. And especially the idea that you're not communicating through reason. It goes back to that Rousseau legislative yep. thing. You know, it is through charisma and, and through sort of these mass movements, iconography, um, essentially, you're trying to speak to the heart. You're not really trying to speak to the head. And they never did try to speak to the head. Five, the supremacy of the state. Mussolini again, fascism recognizes the individual only insofar as his interests coincide with the state, which stands for the consciousness and the universality of man as a historic entity. And this is where we have a distinction, because that's not really the Nazi position. The Nazi position is loyalty to the party. And that's actually demonstrated 
in terms of how mm. they govern. You know, so mm. the, there's a sort of shadow state in Germany of the party, of the party and the state operating sort of with it, with a bit of tetchy sort of sometimes with, with a bit of friction, which which as as I understand it is not the case in Italy, where the state sort of is this all encompassing object of worship. Six, the theatre of uniformity. Hitler in 1929 said 60,000 men have outwardly become almost a unit, that actually these members are uniform not only in ideas, but that even the facial expression is almost the same. Look at these laughing eyes, this fanatical enthusiasm, and you will discover how 100,000 men in a movement become a single type. And the power of being part of something bigger than yourself, which we often talk about in a very benign way. Yes. And it's a very human thing. And this was like that, that the sort of weaponized, radicalized form of that. Well, it's th- this is when, you know, I mean, goes will talk about our, our purpose is to eradicate any memory of the French Revolution. And it's essentially, it's the counter enlightenment. You know, it is the eradication, yes. the complete eradication of the individual in favor of the group. And the sort of articulable political creation of that social consciousness that Rousseau would point out or that Le Bon was sort of alluding to on crowd psychology. It is that the crowd psychology is the level of operation and the individuals underneath it are essentially liquidated as people. Seven, national rebirth. I think we've said quite quite a lot about that. Eight, and this is really interesting, endless struggle. So Mussolini in the Doctrine of Fascism says it is opposed to all Jacobin utopias and innovations. Hmm. It does not believe on the possibility of happiness on earth as conceived by 18th century economic writers, but almost not as conceived by anybody. I think that what it's trying to do, and I'm really completing the set here by giving you a bit more Wells review of Mein Kampf, but I think it was, it was contentious, but he was really onto something. This importance of struggle, he says, whereas socialism and even capitalism in a more grudging way have said to people, I offer you a good time. Hitler has said to them, I offer you struggle, danger, and death. And as a result, a whole nation flings itself at its feet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there was a sense that there was a sort of nobility in struggle. And that that leads inevitably to war. This is why fascism tends towards war. Well, I mean, if that's what, if, if Mussolini's position was war is to man, you know, as maternity is, there's a sense that, well, where's the end of the road (laughs) exactly like you know if you won Mm. what would you do next well you need it's like he says he needs more Mm. he goes you've got that war then do another one and the thing is that that they both discovered is that if you keep on seeing war eventually you're going to lose Mm. but it's that sense that fascism cannot stop it cannot be content there are points at which uh, Mussolini could have stopped after Ethiopia Hitler could have stopped at a certain point in Europe Mm-hmm. In World War II and probably got away with it. Mm-hmm. But they cannot stop because fascism cannot stop. Which is almost like a consequence of the idea of it's not thought, it's action. Because if it isn't thought, if it is action, you do have to keep on doing. You know, you have to keep on moving at all times or else the project will collapse under its own internal inconsistencies. Yeah. And, 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 and Paxton really gets sums all of this up and he goes, the fascist leader wanted to bring his people into a higher realm of politics that they would experience sensually. Fascism's deliberate replacement of reasoned debate with immediate sensual experience transformed politics into aesthetics. It is transcending all of those usual things, which is why they dropped a lot of, I suppose, those elements of socialism very early on, because actually it really wasn't about, you know, a minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Or, or whatever, or workers' co-ops. Mm-hmm. It was about 
being part of this this vast collective enterprise and being able to surrender yourself to this 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 bigger entity almost in the sense i suppose sort of freeing yourself from individuality let me read you a quick quote. This is from 1933. It's just when Hitler becomes chancellor and there's a Nazi parade. And this very little girl, Melitta Mashman, is taken out by her parents to see the parade. And she sees this guy get beaten up and he's lying on the floor bleeding. She says, the horror it inspired in me was almost imperceptibly spiced with an intoxicating joy. We want to die for the flag, the torchbearers had sung. I was overcome with a burning desire to belong to these people for whom it was a matter of life and death. I wanted to escape my childish narrow life and I wanted to attach myself to something that was great and fundamental and that seems to me to encapsulate like the whole of the almost attraction of it to people and doesn't that make sense when it was forged in the fires of the first world war exactly. in that thing of the trenchocracy and the sort of glory of fighting alongside your brother mm-hmm. it begins essentially with war and it ends with at least those in those two countries with war and I think maybe we don't need to say too much about where fascism differed at the time from from authoritarian conservatism because of this kind of like this sort of restless dynamism, which ends up becoming self-destructive. And so even at the time, Franco's forces were described as fascists. I mean, some of them were fascists, the, yeah, the yeah. phalangists, but not all of, all of them were, and historians would say, Franco is not a fascist. That was the word used at the time. It seemed to make sense. He's backed by Hitler and Mussolini. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was more religious. It was dominated by, by conservatives rather than radicals. Spain had, in fact, not experienced the First World War, which is, which is crucial. Mm-hmm. It has ties to the church, the army, the civil service, the monarchy. It values family and property. So people like Franco and Salazar were able to stay in power. They stayed out of the Second World War. They were able to stay in power for decades. Mm-hmm. Until the 70s. Because they, because they, weren't, they weren't truly fascists. And the, the fascists in other countries did appallingly badly before World War II. But, you know, um, Quisling in Norway, his fascist mm-hmm. party, um, never got more than 2% in elections before mm-hmm. the Nazis invaded Norway and put, it, and put it into government. So actually, the story of fascism outside Germany and Italy in the 20s and 30s is of almost complete failure. And the people that, su- the dictators who succeed are authoritarian conservatives mm-hmm. who do not have that that radical zeal, do not have that mysticism, do not, they'll use violence, but they don't fetishize violence. They don't have the revolutionary impulse. And that's a really important distinction historically. Whether it's an important distinction now is I think how we're going to wrap up. Like, how do we define fascism now? When is it fair to use the word? Look, I, I don't have a lot of time for people who do the, this is fascism now according to a formal definition and that's just a button you press, or people that say that it isn't and cannot be because of whatever criteria they put, because it is, as we've just covered, 
It's like trying to, you know, hammer down water. Like, you know, it, it just doesn't have the degree of consistency and coherence that you would be able to come up with that kind of definitive checklist. As much as people on Twitter like to put out definitive checklists and go, right, the button's on. I just don't, I don't have time for that. I think that the real, you know, you can point to this stuff around it, counter-enlightenment, use of violence, particularly for communication, but as part of its own philosophy, sub-rational communication around symbols, the supremacy of the in-group, the, the fusion of right-left thought to vary various degrees and the extreme uniformity. You can point to all of these things, but you don't need all of them in place to use it. Yeah. And sometimes the, a little bit of all of them might be there and it still wouldn't be applicable. So a point, for instance, take this. Okay, so this is from Giorgia Maloney, who I'm very sorry to say the sentence is the Prime Minister of Italy at the moment. This is a quote from her, from a speech she did. Why is the family an enemy? Why is the family so frightening? There is a single answer to all these questions, because it defines us, because it is our identity, because everything that defines us is now an enemy for those who would like us to no longer have an identity and simply to be perfect consumer slaves. She goes on to say that I, if they get what they want, I'll be the perfect slave at the mercy of financial speculators. Now, I don't really think that she is a fascist right now. She's Because she feels she needs to say it, she's against Putin. She's, she's reducing her criticism of Europe. But that kind of rhetoric mm. is fascist rhetoric. They look at the combination of right and left. You know, the, the use of the family as a form of identity, her constant talk about rootedness. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you then forego the next thing he says, she's a fascist, she's a fascist, she's a fascist. She comes from fascist heritage. Oh, yeah. She's saying fascist stuff. And then it's useful to have that word to highlight how what she's saying there, by the way, is very different to what conservatives say, you know, in other contexts. Yeah. So on, on the one hand, I think you've got the you've got these sort of purists. And I think it's a dead end. It's like, okay, fine, if you just want to say this is what fascism was then. But mm -hmm. again, I think actually, well, the fact that, that Italian and German fascism were so different means what are you being purist about? Because these don't even, they didn't even add up at the yes, time. Yes, exactly. They're really yeah. quite different, different projects. And then I suppose representing the more fluid and open definition is Umberto Eco. Yeah. His famous idea of ur-fascism. And he had um, a list of like 14 characteristics. Now, the thing is that fascism synthesized so many different elements that it has to be all of them. You can't just point at one or two. And this is what a lot of people do now. They point things on uh, Echo's uh, checklist. There's others' checklists that circulate. But if I had a chocolate cake recipe and I only ticked off eggs and flour, I could be making a lot of things. It wouldn't necessarily be a chocolate cake. And so, for example, what does he mention here? Fear of difference. <laughs> like contempt for the weak. Appeal to social frustration. Well, this is a lot of right-wing politics, mm -hmm. right? It's not necessarily fascism. But what I think is, is, is useful about Echo's idea of ur-fascism is his ur-fascism is still around us, sometimes in plain clothes. It would be much easier for us if there appeared on the scene somebody saying, I want to reopen Auschwitz. I want the black shirts to parade again yes. in the Italian squares. Life is not that simple. And so you do need to be able to point to people like, say, Slobodan Milosevic, who really, you know, expansionist war, racist, authoritarian. And Paxton describes this as a functional equivalent. He goes, you don't have to argue about is Milosevic fascist or not. Functionally, he was doing very similar things to the fascists in 1990s Europe. Mm -hmm. And this is where, and this sounds perhaps like, like you know, a little weak that I'm sort of fence-sitting here. But I think in order to get around this, I think it's a quite sort of tedious debate, 
phrases like post-fascism, quasi-fascism, neo-fascism, semi-fascism, which is Joe Biden's description of Mm -hmm. MAGA movement, you know, are fair enough because there is enough going on in, say, Trumpism that is fascistic. Now, the fact is that he does not, he was actually isolationist, not interested in wars. You know, he's not interested in sort of regimentation. The violence is very chaotic. You look at the people storming the Capitol on January the 6th, like they were like a visually a mess. Mm-hmm. There was no sense that they were all wearing a, a uniform. So you can look at, there's an essay by Richard J. Evans where, you know, he points out all the ways in which Trump does not fit the bill of fascism. Yeah. And yet there are enough ways in which he does. The quandary, therefore, I think, is does saying, using the word fascism, to does that work, as in it raises the alarm and like, watch out? Or, as Evans says, you know, actually ends up downplaying the danger. It's, it's a faulty prescription. And therefore, you're wondering, how do you combat fascism when you should be working out? How do you combat this new thing? I find that, I hate saying this because I feel like I say this every episode, but the answer is surely a bit of both. Like, if you overuse it, yes, you are reducing the power to point out when something is happening. If you get rid of your capacity to talk about it at all, you seem, you, I think you have undermined your own ability to be critical about right-wing politics in your own time. So right-wing populism and fascism are different things. However, they do have the same roots, the same ideological roots. They share ideas way back in the same way that like left-wing liberalism or social democracy and neoliberalism would share roots with like Locke, for instance, or Adam Smith, right? There are shared roots there. And on that basis, it's useful to have this quite clear impression of a particularly sort of virile variant of that kind of thought. Because it clearly can be quite attractive towards people. It clearly can be a recruiting sergeant in certain scenarios, typically where the political system is failing to operate and the economic system isn't delivering for people and they're yearning for a sense of identity. Situations which, frankly, we can recognize right now in our own time. And to be able to go and look, that shit over there is not your normal conservative horror show. That is a next level thing that's going on over there that leads almost invariably to very, very dark places. And having that word to me as a sort of fire alarm, as a hang on, this is serious now, that seems to me to be a very useful thing. And you wouldn't want to give it up in the same way as you wouldn't want to use it too often either. But what surprised me, I think, maybe thinking about this was how much of this was unclear even in the 1930s and mm-hmm. 40s. So Orwell writes this essay in 1944, What is Fascism? So he's, he's saying it's, it's used far too widely. He says, I've heard it applied to farmers, shopkeepers, social credit, corporal punishment, fox hunting, bullfighting, the 1922 committee, the 1941 committee, <laughs> Kipling, Gandhi, Chiang Kai-shek, homosexuality, Priestley's broadcasts, that's J.B. Priestley, youth hostels, astrology, women, dogs, and I do not know what else. Now, he suggests that almost any English person would accept bully as a synonym for fascist. And again, right? Like, it's almost a vibe. It's almost like you know it when you... You see it. If you're worrying whether someone's a fascist, that in itself is, is, you know, (laughs) that has some value. And then he says, and I think this still applies now, all one can do for the moment is to use the word with a certain amount of circumspection and not, as is usually done, degrade it to the level of a swear word. And that, I suppose, is where it can be too limiting. If the idea is, if by calling someone a fascist, you're invoking Nazism, 
Therefore, you were invoking the Holocaust. Therefore, you were invoking the depths of human evil. Then that can shut things down because that's not where fascism started. That is not what defines fascism. And it should be totally legitimate to point out these, these tendencies and these aspects without it just seeming like the ultimate denunciation, because once you've called someone fascism, the argument is over. And I think that the word fascist, as you suggested, is most usefully used as a way to sort of start a conversation. Okay, well, let's wrap it up. If you have anything to send in to us, things that we've got right, things that we've got wrong, send us an email at originstory@podmasters.co.uk. We have some light relief next week with the war on drugs, <laughs> which would be considered serious at any other time. But right now, I'm thinking like, shit, that should come with a comedy track. And if you would like to hear the war on drugs, the podcast episode, not the band, right now, then you can sign up to support us on Patreon. Cheerio. Season two of Origin Story was written and presented by Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison and Origin Story is a Podmasters production.